Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but nothing with God, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Philosophers for a long time have been trying to ask and answer what they call life's ultimate questions. There are questions like, why are we here? Uh, What is our purpose? And what happens after we die? And everyone asks these questions. You've probably asked these questions too, haven't you? And questions like these help us to think about what it means to be human. They help us recognize the difference between a person and a plant They help us make sense of the world around us. And these questions build on one another. How you answer one affects how you answer the next. And you've heard me say recently that 72% of all Americans say that they believe in heaven. But the greater question is not whether or not heaven exists, but how do you get there? In that same survey, they defined heaven as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Now, that is not how the Bible defines heaven, but that's how they defined it for this survey to ask these people if they believed that there was a heaven. And 72% of them said that heaven is where people who lead good lives are eternally rewarded. 
And the sad thing is that as it was defined that way, 85% of Christians also said that they believed that that's what heaven was. You couple that with two-thirds of people believing that most people in our world are basically good, even though everyone sins a little bit. Um, I've even seen t-shirts to that effect that say, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Uh, But I can tell you this right now, if I had a can of Coke and I dumped it into a cup and I said, would you like this cup of Coca-Cola? And you're like, yeah, that'd be great, right? But then right as you were getting ready to take it, I took a big swig of it and spit it right back into the cup. And I was like, now do you want it? You'd go, no, that's disgusting. And I'd say, it's only a little bit of spit. You know, what's your deal? Most people, two-thirds, believe that everyone's basically good even though they sin a little. And so you put those two things together and you have a recipe for people believing that all it takes to get to heaven is to be a good person. This means that the average person that we run into each day thinks that they live a generally good life and that they will make it into heaven one day because of that. They might argue, it's not like I've killed anyone. All right, fantastic. Keep that up. You know, thank God you haven't killed anybody. But that doesn't mean that they're a good person, does it? Because at best, killing someone is like the minimum standard, right? There are a lot of other bad things someone can do that don't involve murder. So maybe they are not as good as they thought. I mean, you could even go through the Ten Commandments with them, asking them if they've honored their father and mother all the time, to which they would probably respond, no. Or if they've lied... Jesus says that if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He says if you have anger, then you've committed murder. Not doing so hot, are we? Have you lied? Have you coveted what somebody else has had? Have you stolen? And that's only six out of the ten. Not doing too hot, are we? What does it take then for someone to have eternal life? That's the question that everybody in our world, wants to ask and to have the answer to. It's the question that the man in our text today also asked. And he received an answer. Notice what happens in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Matthew and Luke have parallel accounts of this. And in Matthew's account, we learn that that this man was young. And in Luke's account, we learn that he was a ruler. And each account tells us that he's wealthy. And so if you have headings in your Bible, it probably says, the rich young ruler. Apparently, this was a wealthy, moral, important leader in his community. And we're told this young man ran up, knelt down, as Jesus was setting out on his journey. And just a few interesting facts here about this, the setup to this story. Wealthy Middle Eastern men don't run. They just don't. It's undignified because the clothing that they wore back then was loose and flowing and they would have had to have lifted it up in order to you know, run like they ought to. Otherwise, they'd trip and fall, which would be even worse. But they would reveal their not-so-tan legs be like your farmer friend who's going to the pool for the first time this year, and it looks like they're still wearing their T-shirt and jeans. So he wouldn't have run in public. That would have been undignified. 
Even more wealthy rulers don't normally bow down to anyone. Other people bow down to them. And on top of all of that, Jesus was in public. He was in the middle of the road where everyone could see what was going on. And so you have this man who has undignified himself, who has bowed down and is out in public. And this shows us the eagerness, the urgency with with which this man wanted to get his question answered. There was something unsettled in his soul that he was willing to do whatever it took to try and find an answer to his question. And it comes as no surprise that a man who had probably inherited some of his wealth was concerned and asked a question about what he should do to inherit eternal life. And so what we have here is the story of a man who went to the right person, Jesus, who asked the right question about eternal life, but he went away grieving. He was unable to acquire the eternal life that he wanted because he was unwilling to surrender his possessions and follow Jesus. Now this man's specific issue was his wealth, his riches. And so you might be tempted to think, well, that doesn't apply to me because there is no standard in the world by which anyone would ever call me rich or wealthy. And so I'm good. This doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not wealthy. So, you know, it's not wealth keeping me out of the kingdom of God. And if that's what you're thinking, you've missed the point of the text entirely. Of course, these verses do challenge people's trust in their wealth, but there is a bigger picture in the making. In the passage, eternal life, treasure in heaven, saved, kingdom of God, are mentioned seven different times. Mark is showing us what Jesus' requirements are for eternal life, what it takes in order to be saved. And it's clear that salvation from the very beginning to the very end is not some human accomplishment. It's not something that we can do. It's not something that we can buy. And if we start from that point, we better understand what this passage is talking about. There are people in the world, and maybe there are people in here today, who believe that if a good God exists, then He must reward good people, nice people. And if I do my best to do as much good as I can, and if I do my best to be as nice as I can, then one day God will reward me too. And I run into people all the time who believe that. Most of the conversations, in fact, I had one at the end of last week while I was filling up at the Shell station on my motorcycle. By the way, my motorcycle starts more conversations than anything else in my life. I got off the motorcycle and the guy came around to look at it. He saw my patch and he goes, oh. He goes, uh, he asked me if I knew somebody and I, I didn't know who in particular he was talking about. But I said, we got into a conversation and he believed that if he was good enough that he'd go to heaven. He even said that almost exactly that same way. I just try and be good. I do good to people and I'm, you know, I think I'm okay with God. And I said, I said, I really enjoyed getting to meet you, but just so you know, we need to talk more because nobody can be good enough. People will say I'm successful. I have my life put together. All of my bills are paid. I didn't yell at the cashier at the grocery store. 
I help people when it doesn't cost me too much. I'm a good and nice person. Surely I'm on God's good side. C.S. Lewis wrote about these kind of people. He said, A world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God. They are just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. And that's what we find in this text too. A difficult man to save. Jesus even says so much. How hard is it? How hard is it for this man to be saved? And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Leaning on, relying on something other than Christ alone. That you think is going to help you get to heaven one day. It won't. The young man calls Jesus good teacher. And that seems like a good start, right? Showing respect. That's what we teach our children to do. We don't say, you know... You know, you, if, if, you know, whenever I was young, they wouldn't go up and call me Chris. They'd go, Mr. Bass, or actually it's Dr. Bass, but I don't call, have people call me that. But you get the idea, right? We, we, we have them call them by their respectful titles, Mr. or Mrs. And we teach our children. That's what, that's what this man's doing with Jesus. He's being respectful. And he says, good teacher. But look at Jesus' response in verse 18. He says, why do you call me Good. No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God alone. Jesus is setting this young man up for what is getting ready to come. Jesus knows where this conversation is going. So he wants the first thing for this young guy to know is that if he's looking for what is good, then he needs to look to God. He's not going to find anything good on earth unless he finds that good thing in God alone. And then the man continues, what must I do? What must I do? There's a problem with that sentence. The young man thinks that his eternal life is dependent on his ability to do something good. And you're a good student if you remember that last week we learned there is nothing that anyone can do in order to gain eternal life. In fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus told his disciples that salvation is not earned, but it is received like a gift. And we must come to God like helpless children, realizing that we we have nothing. Realizing that, that we have no way, we're helpless and we're hopeless to solve our problem of sin on our own. And just as a child who has fallen down and gotten hurt or has some problem that they're facing runs to their mom and dad and says, Mommy, Daddy, help! That's how we run to God to fix the issue of sin that we cannot fix on our own. And the man asks, What must I do? And so Jesus gives him something to do. He says, all right, if it has to be that way, here's what you do. The law. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus gives him the second half of the Ten Commandments. And uh, as beautiful of depiction that Charlton Heston gave as Moses, 
the commandments were not large, torso-sized stones that were carried like this. In fact, most of the, most of the stones they find in ancient rubble were about maybe the size of your palm. And that's all that they would have needed to have written down. It's just like a piece of paper that we would have today. They scribble it down a piece of clay. It hardens. It dries. Boom. Ten commandments. Although God wrote it in rocks. But it would have been enough. You could actually fit it in your pocket. Sorry if I bursted your bubble about Moses. But he gives him the second table of the laws, a second tablet. And he says, what? I've done all these things. And, and Jesus, his answer in giving him the law was a good answer. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, says that the man who obeys the law will have life. So it was a good answer. But you might be thinking, wait a second, Chris, I memorized the Ten Commandments when I was young. And I know for a fact, let me check, I know for a fact that do not defraud is not a commandment. And you'd be right. It's an application, though, based on the Eighth and Ninth Commandment, not to steal or lie. Because if you steal, if you're stealing and lying, you're defrauding someone. And since Jesus is God and it's God who has given us the Ten Commandments, I think that we can allow him to edit them slightly for his purpose in reaching this young man. What was his reply? Teacher. He's a fast learner, by the way, because he called him good teacher first and Jesus said, No one's good except for God alone. So he left the good part off on the second address to Jesus. And he just says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And I think he was sincere. I think he was sincere about answering that question. I think that he believed that he had kept all of them. But he also believed that entrance into eternal life depended on his being good. And he believed that he had been good enough. But even with all of that, even with the sincerity with which he answered it, there was still something deep down within his soul that left him uneasy. And at this point, the young man is puzzled. His question was a hope that Jesus would point something out that he had missed, something that he had overlooked. Jesus, I've kept all the commandments, but there's still something going on. Certainly I've missed something. What do I do? And Jesus says, keep the law. I did it. What else have I missed? And he did miss something. And it was something big. What he missed was that anyone who is counting on what they do to get eternal life will find that no matter how much they do, it will never be enough. And they will always feel empty. The reason is that you can never know that you've been good enough. How would you know? How do you know that you've done enough? People are counting on the fact that when they get to heaven that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds. And what they've missed is the whole point that their sin is far worse than they have imagined. And their good deeds are a small pile in comparison. The scales are already tipped very far in the wrong direction. And no matter how much good they do, they'll never catch up. How good is good enough? This man is working from a good works-based approach to salvation. 
The problem is, is that sin isn't just being bad. Sin is actually rebelling against a holy and righteous God. Sin is not just some action that we commit. It is an attitude of our hearts. Sin is so bad that you'll remember that Jesus told us it's better for us to cut off our foot if it causes us to sin than to keep both feet and go to hell in chapter 9, verse 45. In other words, he says, it's better to limp into heaven than dance into hell. And this guy believed that if he did a few good things that he could settle up his account with God? I mean, he did it in every other area of his life, didn't he? If he owed somebody something for some services that they provided, he just brought them in, settled up the account, paid them, and moved on. Everything was good. Say one of his workers destroyed someone else's property. He sent that worker with money, made restitution, everything was good. Settled the account. And that's exactly what he thought he could do with God. Sure, God, I know I've done a few bad things, but what are the couple of good things I can do to settle out my account, to make a square so that I can make it into eternal life? That's what he thought he could do with God, but he was very, very wrong. Maybe one of the most beautiful things in this entire story is said in verse 21. It says, Jesus loved him. Did you catch that? Jesus loved him, but he told him, you lack one thing. And this isn't the point of this story, but I have to pause for just a moment and say, our society and our culture and our world says that if you disagree with somebody, you hate them. If you try and correct somebody or show them the right way, that, that you're wrong for doing that. That you must, you must have a lot of hate built up in your heart for, to do that. But what does it say here? Jesus loved him, so he corrected him. He told him the thing that he didn't want to hear, the thing that was, that was going to hurt him in order for him to actually be helped and to be saved. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is tell somebody that they're wrong and point them in the right direction. And that's what Jesus does here. I imagine that the man was hopeful. One thing, only one thing, Jesus? Just one thing? Fantastic. This is going to be easy. Easiest day of my life. Only one thing. All right. And he was probably hanging on every word of Jesus after that. And the Greek word order is fascinating here. It is go, and the man must have thought, check, I'll go, no problem. Where do you want me to go? And then he says, all that you possess. And the man was probably thinking, go, all you possess has already saved me? Because at that world, in that time, the blessing of God was seen, uh, they, they thought that God blessed people materially if they had his blessing spiritually. And so all the disciples and everybody there thought, this guy is with God. Look at all of his blessings. Happened with Job. Job and his friends thought the same thing. That was the idea at the time. And so Jesus says, go, all that you have. And he goes, has saved me? And Jesus goes, sell it. That's the Greek word order. Go, all you have, sell it. And give it away to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. That's the, sh- that's the hammer that shattered this man into pieces. 
Mark says that he went away grieving because he had many possessions. You know when you go to the doctor for some kind of pain, and they're like, well, what's the general area that it's in? And you like maybe point to your knee or wherever. And I don't know how doctors know how to do this, but the very first thing they touch is always the most sensitive spot, right? They just have a, they, I don't know how they do it, but they always do. And they don't just touch it, they poke it. And they push on it. And you're like, yep, that's the spot, that's the spot. And that's what Jesus is doing with the man here. He's poking him where it hurt the most. And then when the doctor finally identifies the thing that's wrong, he'll say, all right, we can fix this. But let me tell you what it's going to take. And then he goes on to tell you about the painful procedure, which will be followed by weeks of agonizing physical therapy. Well, they will bend your body in ways it was never designed to bend in order to gain mobility back in whatever part they have just replaced, right? People who have knee surgeries know what I'm talking about, right? This man knew the problem. He knew the solution. But what was his response? I'm not ready to put myself through all of that, Jesus, in order to be healed. I'll just suffer on. It sounds silly, right? And if somebody had knee pain, we'd go, come on, just go get it fixed. A little pain now for mobility for a long time? But people do this. They do it medically, and they also do it spiritually. They are unwilling to go through that temporary pain in order to achieve something far greater. This young man's covetousness, which is the only commandment that Jesus left off, it was exposed. His whole life was wrapped up in money. He based his identity, his status, his goodness, his standing with God on his wealth. I'm a good person. Look at how much money I have. I'm a good person. Look how much money I've given away. That's what he thought. And there are many still who believe this. You find several of them on television preaching the prosperity of God. But worldly wealth cannot be the sign of God's blessing Because it's exactly what Satan offered Jesus, and he declined. Jesus told the young man, this is what you need to do. Ditch all you have, all your stuff, all your wealth, your position, get rid of it. And once you do that, come and follow me. For this man it was his wealth, but for you it might be something else. It might be a relationship, an underhanded business practice. It might be cheating on your taxes or your homework. It could be lying about something in order for that situation to go in your favor or hanging on to some secret sin that only you know about. It could be an inappropriate relationship, a long-standing grudge, skimming money off the top, spreading gossip or lies, or maybe it's just a simmering anger just below the surface. Whatever it is, Jesus says, ditch it. 
Cut it out. Throw it far away from yourself. And I can already hear objections because I know my heart has them as well. But you don't understand what that will mean for me. I've spent a lot of time and I have a lot invested in that situation, in that thing in my life. Do you know what people are going to think of me if I come clean? I could lose business, friends, family, my reputation. It's too much to ask. I can't do it. In another encounter with Jesus, a different man named Zacchaeus had a different response. Granted, Jesus did not tell Zacchaeus to do anything, but his heart was already in the right place. Zacchaeus said, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Same issue, different man, different response, different outcome. The rich young ruler was a moral man in the eyes of the world, and he thought that he was a religious man, but he was not willing to do whatever it took in order for him to have eternal life. One of the most demonic and harmful false teachings that has been taught and believed is that idea that somehow a man can make himself good enough to deserve to be saved by a holy God. For some reason, we continue to believe that there is something that we can do to earn our salvation. We can't because we're not good enough. This man leaves feeling like he's not good enough. He feels frustrated. He feels defeated. He probably has done well in his business life and hasn't had to suffer much rejection or defeat in his his transfers of wealth. The disciples are shocked. Jesus said to them, look at verse 23, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It might as well say, how hard is it for people who think they're good or nice or whatever it is that you're banking on? I've given, how hard is it for the generous? Whatever it is. And then in verse 24, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus, that's just impossible. A camel through the eye of a needle? Come on. So some people throughout the years have tried to soften what Jesus is saying here. The most popular position, and I'm sure that you've heard it, proposes that the eye of the needle was a name for a very small gate that a man could go through but it would be tough for a camel. So the camel would have to be unburdened of his load and get down on his knees and crawl through the gate, and he would make it. So that preacher would say that the rich man must unburden himself if he is going to make it into heaven. 
The only problem is, is that there is no gate that has ever been discovered called the Eye of the Needle. And it only came to popularity in the 19th century, this idea. A more scholarly attempt to soften the words of Jesus comes from the word for camel in Aramaic, which is camelos, and they think it is an inter- as a misinterpretation for the Aramaic word for rope, which is camillus. Camelos, camillus. You can see how that might happen. But each of those misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. In fact, it undermines the point and cuts it off at his knees. Jesus is saying that the smallest opening, it would be easier for the largest animal in Palestine to be squeezed through the smallest opening than for the wealthy to ever enter the kingdom of God, or really anybody to enter into the kingdom of God. The camel gate or rope leave the possibility that something could be done. But Jesus is saying it's impossible. It's impossible. It cannot be done. How hard is it to be saved? And that's how the disciples take it. They ask, then who can be saved? If this wealthy guy, who we see as somebody who has received the blessings of God because of his great wealth, if he can't make it, who can? Who can make it at all? Jesus, what you're saying is impossible. If he can't be saved, then how can we ever be saved? Where's the hope for us? Wrapped up in Jesus' answer is a hard truth. And that hard truth is that it's not hard to be saved. It's impossible to be saved by your own good works. But God is the God of the impossible. And for him, the impossible is possible. Jesus responded, with man it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, it's impossible for man to do anything. You've, you've thoroughly proved that to us, Chris, from this text. I can't do it. Why does Jesus tell him the law then? If he can't do anything, why does Jesus give him something to do? The law is given to show us just how sinful we are. Even when we try hard to obey it, we can't. We fail. We fall short. We sin. Jesus told him the law in the hopes that he would say, Oh my, I'm a terrible sinner. I've utterly failed. There's not one law that I have kept. How can I receive God's grace now? I don't deserve it. But instead, the young man says, I've been perfectly obedient. Maybe that was true externally, where everyone else could see, but his heart was far from it. The law is intended to work like a mirror, showing us how dirty we are. But mirrors cannot wash us. Mirrors cannot 
make us clean. They can only show us where the dirt is. And the one purpose of the law is to show us how dirty our souls have become, how terribly sinful we are. But trying to obey the law in order to get clean is like a man who is looking into a mirror with a washcloth, rubbing on the mirror, trying to get the dirt off of his face. Ridiculous, right? He'll have a very clean mirror, but a very dirty face. The law was to show us how dirty we are, to point us to the one and only one who can cleanse us of our sins and our souls. The young man did not see himself as a condemned sinner before a holy and righteous God. He believed he had done everything that he needed to do, but he was lacking a living faith, a living faith in God. Money might have been able to buy him a bed, but as we can see from his urgent distress in asking Jesus a question, it could not buy him a good night's sleep. Money might have been able to buy him a pew in the church, but it could not buy him a place in heaven. It was his idea of what was good that tripped him up, which is why Jesus tells him from the start that only God is good. This man could never be good enough to make it to heaven. It didn't matter how much money he had, how much money he gave away, how many good deeds or how many laws he kept. He would never be good enough. And neither can you. You can't be good enough either. The young man's problem was not his financial worth, but his moral worth. No one has ever been saved by selling all of their stuff and giving it away. So if you think that that's the lesson from this, then you've also missed the point. We aren't saved by any of that. We're saved by trusting in the Son of God, who Paul tells us gave up everything in order that we might have eternal life and His grace. The young man did not think that he needed the grace of God. But those who will be saved who will receive eternal life and enter into the kingdom of God are those who know that it is impossible for them to save themselves. They know that there is absolutely nothing that they can contribute to their salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. For them to be saved would be impossible. It would take a miracle. And that's where God steps in for us. He does the impossible And he performs the miracle through his son's death, the shed blood on the cross, taking our place, taking our sins upon himself and paying the price and giving us eternal life. Jesus' answer forces him to recognize that his only hope is an utter reliance upon God who alone can give him eternal life. And true to form, Peter pipes up, like he always does, putting his mouth ahead of his brains. And in verse 28 says to Jesus, Look, we've left everything and followed, to you, and followed you. Oh, Peter. 
His response shows there's still some work to be done in his own heart. What do we get, Jesus? We've already left it all. You said that this guy needed to leave it all and follow you. That's what we've already done. What's in it for us? Eventually, Peter's going to get it, by the way, in case you're worried about him. But he's got some room to grow. In Acts chapter 3, verse 6, we see Peter moves from what will I get to saying to a man who needs a miracle of God in order to walk, what I have, I will give to you. Jesus tells them that there is a reward in verses 29 through 31. Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. Some have taken this to mean that we will gain material wealth in this life if we sacrifice our material wealth first. So if I just plant a seed of my money, then God will give me a harvest of money even greater. By the way, if you're ever watching a television preacher or any preacher and he says that, feel free to change the channel. And if you're in the room with him, just go ahead and get up and walk out. But that can't be what's meant because Jesus has told the young man to get rid of everything. In fact, he tells him to give it to the poor. In fact, I don't even think that this parable is is Jesus condemning wealth. I don't think he has a problem with people who are wealthy. What he has a problem with is people who are relying only on their wealth in order to be right with God. Or relying only on their, whatever it is, good deeds, only on their niceness, only on the fact that their grandmother went to church one time back in the day. And they took the, and I went with her. They're relying on something other than Christ alone. I believe that Jesus is speaking spiritually about the reward that comes from sacrificing everything for his sake. We'll find a new house, the church, a new family, the family of God. He'll give us new fields, the mission field. And he says, we'll experience persecutions which over and over in the New Testament, again, are ways that we know that we're identifying our life with the life of Christ. Persecutions come when we're living our lives for the Lord. And that's part of the reward, too. It's an incredible part of the reward. Jesus closes his teaching the same way that he started it back in chapter 9, verse 35, after his second prediction of his death. And here at the end, right before he predicts his death one more time, he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What should we make of all of this? I have five quick takeaways. The first one is that there will be people who go to the right person, they ask the right question, they'll get the right answer, but they will go away sad because they're unwilling to give up everything to follow Jesus. We're going to see them. You probably know some that are like that. You shared the gospel with them hundreds of times, but they're unwilling to let go of their sin or whatever it is that they think is propping them up. And they're sad and they're defeated. We shouldn't stop telling them the gospel just because of that, because maybe they'll get it one day. And maybe God will change their heart. The second is this. 
This teaching comes right after Jesus' teaching that entrance into the kingdom of God is described as a gift of God given to those who have come to acknowledge that they are weak, hopeless, and helpless to save themselves. Thus, a rich man who is relying on his wealth or anyone who is relying on anything besides Christ alone cannot make it into heaven. We cannot walk into heaven on our own. We must be carried in the arms of our Savior. Number three, salvation is a free gift based on the finished work of Christ for those who respond in faith. We will never, ever be good enough. The problem comes when we somehow think that we deserve it or that we can work for it. Faith is very hard for prideful, self-sufficient, fallen people. We would like it better if our relationship with God was difficult and hard and so we could take some pride in having worked for it. But that isn't how it works. Number four, even though we are not good enough and it is impossible for us to be saved by what we do, God is good and works exclusively in the impossible and we can be saved based on what he has done Number five, stop trusting in anything other than the grace of God. God's grace is our only hope. It's our only hope when we come to saving faith in Jesus, and it's our only hope if we want to continue in that faith. It's grace from the beginning to the end. We don't get saved by anything that we do, and we don't stay in God's good grace by anything that we do. It's purely His grace the entire time. But that incredible grace and love changes us in a very incredible and foundational way deep down in our soul. And we begin to live our lives as a reflection of the grace that God has extended to us. And so let me encourage you today. If you find yourself like the rich young ruler, leaning on something other than the goodness of God, His grace, stop it. And instead, put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And if you already have put your faith and trust in Christ alone, there's places in the Bible where Paul gets on to people for going back, thinking that there's something that they can add to the cross or something that they can do in order to receive more of God's love. You do realize that God loves you completely and there's no more love that He can extend towards you because He's extended all of it. And no matter what you've done, He doesn't pull it away. That's a life-changing love. His unconditional love for those He has saved. So we should stop resting in each day wondering, Is God, does God love me today? Did I do enough? No, you can't because you're not good enough and you can't do enough. God loves you anyway. So live like he loves you. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.